0: This reading is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. and faithfulness to sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Good
1: evening. Uh, My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar, and it's my privilege to be taking us through that wonderful little reading we just had from Isaiah 11. Let's pray before we look at it together. Father God, we long to... We long to know truth, and so we pray that whether we're familiar with these things or very new to them, that you would help us to see, to recognise, and to love truth when we hear it. For our good and your glory, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 2020, what a year. What a year. A year weirder even than Elon Musk and Grimes' baby name. I mean, who actually knows how to pronounce it? I looked it up, it's uh, X-Ash A12, good luck in school. It's uh, a year when the FA had to issue an official statement to clarify that they were not going to bake an enormous lasagna in Wembley Stadium to fill the nation. It's a year when Adolf Hitler got elected in a Namibian local election last week. The man's name is Ewanona Adolf Hitler. He was given the name in the former German colony by his father, who said he had no idea who Hitler was or what he'd done. Wonderfully, uh, Mr. Ewanona confirmed recently that he has no plans to take over the world. What a weird year. But sadly, most of the news hasn't been weird and wonderful. It has just been plain miserable. Obviously, COVID has dominated the headlines, but it's had to fight for attention. Brexit continues to be the gift that just keeps on giving. But actually, the the thing that has, has dominated the news along with COVID has been issues of oppression and injustice and race riots. We have been hearing again and again about it all year. I mean, who would have thought at the start of 2020 that kneeling could be a symbol of subjugation, of oppression. Of course, it's not kneeling in humility before others, but kneeling on them in subjugation. Race riots, the legacy of the slave trade, arguments over unconscious bias, they've they've rumbled on throughout the year. And whatever your view on the specific issues, all of us long for a just and a fair society. But at the end of 2020, no one seems to have any answers as to how we can achieve the society that we all long for. I want to show you over the next few minutes that the hope of Christmas is the hope of one who can end the oppression. And one who can give us the society that we really long for deep down. The hope of Christmas is that Jesus, the child of Christmas, will do this as he provides the leadership that we lack. And as he gives us the peace that we long for. What we'll see um, firstly in Isaiah 11 is uh, here is a leader who's focused on serving the people, not winning elections. Look with me at verse one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, Isaiah is writing in around 700 BC and he's writing to the nation of Israel, who at this time are facing an existential threat, not from a pandemic, but from a brutal superpower who is soon to invade them. Uh, God's people are pictured as a great tree that is about to be hacked down. But hope comes in Isaiah 11 as God promises that a shoot will grow up from the stump. A broken, defeated people will see hope grow out of shattered ruins. Now, in history, Jesse was the father of David. So for a a shoot to grow out of the stump of Jesse, well, that's the promise of a great king, the leader that the people long for. Now, the great presidents and kings of fiction and history, they have absolutely nothing on this man when he's described in the next verses. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness his sash around his waist this this leader this president this king is a mixture of uh of Jed Bartlett from the west wing of aragorn from lord of the rings of winston churchill and nelson mandela but he he's even better than all of those figures combined he is a leader who's focused on serving the people, not just winning elections. He is a leader who has the ability to make a deep and a lasting difference to the society he serves. Three things we learn about him in these verses. Firstly, he's a leader who knows what to do and has the power to do it. So he's imbued with wisdom, with understanding, with counsel and with might. I mean, there's no good having a brilliant plan if you, if you don't have the power to put it into action. Far worse, though, of course, is having all the power in the world, but to lack the wisdom to use it for the good of others. Well, twice then we're told um, this, this ruler, this king also delights in the fear of the Lord, which you think, well, hang on, surely that's the last thing we need, some religious zealot. If You want a great leader to, to keep their religion out of his or her politics, surely. Well, not when you understand what fear of the Lord means in the Bible. It really comes down to who do you ultimately serve? Isaiah's point is that here is a leader who's not driven by fear of the opinion polls or the Twitter mobs or some unruly faction of backbenchers. Here is a ruler who doesn't live to get rich or live in the pocket of party donors. Instead, they fear they serve the Lord God of the Bible, who is truth, goodness, goodness faithfulness, who is honesty, compassion, courage, and kindness. Thirdly, this ruler's of justice, is, it is both blind and it is effective. So we read, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. No, again, the first time you read it, it sounds like the last thing you want in a judge. A year or two ago, an employment court verdict was overturned on appeal when it was found that uh, the judge, uh, Judge Stewart, had uh, been asleep while the evidence was being presented. Uh, He claimed that he had been attentive to the evidence, but had adopted a meditative posture. Meditative posture. I shall use that one in the future. I mean... The last thing you want is a judge who doesn't look at or or listen to the evidence when it's presented, but just decides on a whim. Actually, Isaiah's leader is the very opposite. His point here is this leader doesn't make decisions that favour those who, who look like him or those who speak like him. His decisions are not grounded in prejudice, but in justice. It means that even the poor, even those with no connection and no power, Even those with, quote, the wrong accent or the wrong skin colour will find justice when they appear before him. And what's more, his justice will see the wicked fairly and fully punished and their power, as we read here, is destroyed completely. The spark, of course, that triggered the race riots in the States this year was the killing of, of a number of black men by white cops. Now, We mustn't judge any of the individual cases until they've been properly and fairly tried in court. But it is undeniable that historically, black people have found that when they've appealed to justice in the courts, criminal actions by white cops get excused or go unpunished. But Isaiah's leader acts decisively to bring justice for everyone, no matter what they look like or sound like. Now a leader, like Isaiah describes here, might well get your vote. (laughs) But the next verses explain why it is that 2,000 years later, millions upon millions upon millions of people not only vote for this leader, but sing his praises in joyful carols. As we, we see here a picture of a leader who is transforming hearts, not turning tables a picture of radical reconciliation actually look with me at uh, verses six to nine the wolf will lie down with uh, will live with the lamb the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them the cow will feed with the bear their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox the infant will play near the cobra's den and a young child will put its hand into the viper's nest they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, don't get hung up on how would a lion's teeth have to change so that it could eat straw like a herbivore. Isaiah is speaking figuratively here about humanity, I think. It's, it's basically an image of, of radical peace because peace in the Bible is, is a broader concept than peace in the way that we talk about it. So for us, we tend, to, we tend to narrowly define peace as just an absence of conflict. We say, look, if Uncle Ron and Dad can manage not to trade insults or trade blows over Christmas, oh, there was peace in our family. But the Bible means something much richer and fuller when it speaks about peace. It means a society in which there are good relationships amongst everybody, where everybody is safe and happy And all people are free to flourish. It's a radically different world from the one that we see. As different as a world in which you would be happy watching a toddler play in a pit full of rattlesnakes. Now these verses show why it is that the message of Jesus offers real hope for our divided, fractious world. Because what we see here is is something much better than the hope of just a turning of the tables. What we see here is the promise of transformation. Let me explain. First, it's not a turning of the tables. It's not as if the lambs get to eat the lions for a change. Just over 100 years ago in Russia, the oppressed masses rose up and overthrew the oppressing powers. But what emerged from the 1917 revolution was not a society in which everybody was free, And flourished. Instead, the oppressed very quickly became the oppressors. And countless millions were starved to death in the fields of Ukraine or worked to death in the gulags of Siberia. It's a pattern, sadly, that we know only too well that the oppressed can so quickly become the oppressors. Uh, You see it today how quickly movements representing victimized minorities can become Twitter mobs that relentlessly pursue and cancel anybody who who doesn't or isn't seen to support their campaign loudly and enthusiastically enough. And they will happily not just cancel them, but destroy livelihoods and reputations as they go. But that's not what happens here. Instead, the result is restored relationships, everyone getting along together, And it happens, firstly, because neither the oppressed nor the oppressors hold the power. Jesus does. And you can trust Jesus to hold the power and to wield it properly because because history shows that Jesus was happy to give away power. And Jesus used power for the blessing of others. Now, when he had all power, he willingly surrendered it. And he came to earth as a baby that first Christmas to serve us to give his life for us, to die, to save us. And, and as, as he hung on a cross, as we put him to death, he wasn't shouting about the vengeance he would bring when he rose again. He was praying for our forgiveness. And so here is someone we can trust with power because he's happy to give it away, because he only ever exercises it for the blessing of others. And because his, harbor, his heart harbors no bitter desire for vengeance. So it's not just a turning of the tables. Instead, much better, secondly, it's the promise of transformation. Now, today's protest movements, when you think about them, what they do is they cancel the lions and they demand that the vipers are are removed from power and that their ability to harm and to bring misery and to oppress is destroyed. But Jesus does something far more radical. He doesn't just deny a platform to the vipers and the lions. He transforms them. He redeems them. He ends the oppression without ending the oppressors. It's remarkable when you, when you read what happens here. He brings about a society where the lions, the bears, and the vipers dwell happily and peacefully with the calves, the lambs, and the toddlers. One of the things that many people have struggled with as we seek to address some of the ingrained racial inequalities in our culture is that the dominant voices are also hopeless. We're told racial bias lies in the hearts of all of us from the majority culture. Rightly so, I think. I mean, we're right to be told that. But we're also told it will always be there and there's nothing you can do to change it. So all we can do is acknowledge it, to confess, I am racist. It's a bleak vision. A confession of original sin, but no hope of redemption. Jesus offers something far, far better here. This is a picture of uh, Thomas Tarrant. Now, Thomas grew up in Mississippi during the civil rights uh, movement of the 1960s, but he had no love for racial justice as he was growing up. He was full of white supremacist hatred. He joined the KKK, and then after the Klan, he joined a very violent white supremacist movement that was committed to the the murder and the, the eradication of blacks, Jews, communists, anybody who was not like them. Eventually, he was imprisoned for 30 years for trying to blow up a Jewish businessman. But in solitary confinement in prison after a failed escape bid, he came across the Gospels, the reliable historical eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And as he read them, he was captivated by a better vision, by the person of Jesus Christ. And as he read about Jesus Christ, he, he for the first time saw his own heart and how ugly and wicked and dark the cause he'd given to himself to really was. And he was blown away as he encountered Jesus. And in Jesus, he found forgiveness for what he'd done in the past. But also he found the hope of transformation for the man that he would be. He was released from prison early and eventually became a minister at a multiracial church where people from across society's divides come together to worship God, to love one another and to serve their community. And here's the key thing. Jesus didn't teach Thomas to go from hating blacks to now, oh, he hates white supremacists. No, Jesus taught him to hate the wicked ideology, but to love all people. And he now tells everybody, whatever their background, whatever their politics, about the message of Jesus Christ, because he found in Jesus is the promise of transformation. It's just a little example of what Isaiah spoke about. Not a turning of the tables, but a radical transformation inside. Now, Jesus' promise of transformation, it matters if you care about the health of society, but it, it matters even more than that when you look inside into your own heart. I guess none of us would think of ourselves as oppressors, and that's probably right that we don't. But when we think about our own families and relationships and some of the thoughts in our own hearts. Well, all of us have to recognise there is an ugliness in here which causes pain and misery to the people I am most supposed to love and serve. And while I may not be pure viper, I'm certainly not pure lamb either, am I? There is more darkness inside than most of us will care to admit. It's the casual neglect of the poor, the indifference, the aching inequalities right on my London doorstep. It's the willingness to to use other people to satisfy my sexual urges. There's the gossipy, mean-spirited conversations where secretly I just enjoy bringing others down, seeing their reputation tarnished because it makes me feel good about myself. Is the way I'm so very quick to excuse my behaviour and so very slow to forgive others who wrong me. There is a great gap too between how I present myself to the public and the person I so often am in secret inside. And beneath it all, beneath it all, driving it all, is the self-absorption that, that acts as if I'm at the centre of the world, that my needs, my wants, my voice are the most important things. That I, even if I serve other people, I must come first. But when we come to Jesus, we find hope for change, even for us. Because the baby who came to live with us at Christmas grew up to be the man who would die for us at Easter. His death on the cross, well, it was the judge of Isaiah 11 punishing human wickedness, but he took our places on the cross and suffered that punishment himself. So that rather than condemning us, he might redeem us and transform us. And so rather than the endless corruption The endless confession, sorry, of an inner corruption that I cannot change. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it promises me forgiveness for Jesus has paid for my sin. And it promises me transformation. That he can reach inside and see the selfishness, the pride, the prejudice, the greed, the unfaithfulness and all the other sins too. And he can change them that peace with God, that blood-bought peace that Jesus gives us as a free gift. Well, when you've received that forgiveness from God, it does start to change you and change how you relate to other people. Apparently, the average number of family arguments on Christmas Day is five. Although if you play Monopoly, you can double that number easily. But if you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ well, then you can bring his peacemaking power into your family this Christmas, your friendships, your workplace, your church, your communities. See, hope for society, hope for your family bubble begins with the hope Jesus brings for change in my heart. My hope this December is not just that 2020 will finally be over, My hope, my certain hope is the forgiveness and transformation that King Jesus offers to every single one of us. And because he came as a baby at Christmas, because he died on the cross at Easter, and because he will come back as the king who brings in paradise in the future, because of that hope, I can truly sincerely wish every one of you a very happy Christmas. Amen.